And please turn your Bibles, friends, this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, it's on page 939 of the Bibles underneath your seats. If you need a Bible this morning, please do avail yourself of that Bible. Friends, if you're just joining us here at Redeeming Grace Church, uh, you've come at a good time. Uh, this is the second uh, sermon in a, in a new series on Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. And so we'll be going through Romans each spring until we're finished. It's not spring yet, but each spring semester until we're finished and looking forward to all that the Lord will do. Uh, last week, we opened up with Paul's greeting in verses 1 to 7. Uh, but as we saw, far from being Paul's, you know, what's up, y'all, uh, verses 1 to 7 in Paul's greeting is thick with the glories of the gospel. Uh, Paul wanted to draw the Romans' uh, attention from the jump to the one at the very center of the good news, God's Son, the crucified and risen King. Uh, as we saw last week, uh, it was through Jesus' resurrection from the dead through Jesus' resurrection, God has enthroned him as the Lord of all. And now, uh, through this risen king, the, the gospel message, the good news of salvation sounds out across the world to bring all nations to the obedience of faith for the sake of his great name. Our text this morning, verses 8 to 17, is, is part of Paul's intro, uh, but verses 16 and 17 there at the end in particular bridge uh, are the bridge to the rest of Paul's letter, and they really get to the very heart of Romans, to the heart of the gospel. Uh, theologians has, have long recognized Romans 1, 16 and 17 to be kind of Paul's thesis statement for the entire letter. Uh, so much of Romans, especially in the first section, will focus on explaining the full meaning and the implications of Romans 1, 16 to 17. Uh, before we dive in, I thought it might be helpful not only to kind of flag uh, the, the importance of these verses for Romans, but also the importance of these verses in church history. Uh, Romans 1, 16 to 17 are the verses that God used to save the German monk in the 16th century, Martin Luther, whose, whose writings sparked the Protestant Reformation in, in 16th century Europe that recovered the true gospel. Uh, as a devout Roman Catholic, uh, Luther believed that, that righteousness was something that could be earned through, through good works and by uh, completing the sacraments of the church. Uh, he also believed that Christians ought to be terrified of God's righteousness because it meant punishment for those who did not live up to his standards. Luther himself had been plagued by guilt and a sense of inadequacy because he felt like he could never do enough good works to earn God's righteousness and forgiveness. Uh, he had been trying to find righteousness by doing penance and other good works prescribed by the Catholic Church, but it never seemed enough. Luther himself uh, described himself as a sinner beyond measure. But through his study of Romans 1, 16 to 17, Luther came to understand that, that righteousness is, is not something that can be earned through human effort, but it's a gift of God. It's received through faith in Christ alone. In his commentary on Romans, Luther wrote this about that experience that day, reading Romans 1, 16 to 17. He said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. 
Years later, Luther was called to appear before the Diet of Worms, a political assembly uh, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, demanded Luther recant of his writings or face certain death. When asked if he would recant, Luther said this, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Luther's unashamed confidence in the gospel, friends, changed the course of history. Friends, how could Martin Luther be so bold? How could the Apostle Paul, in the face of constant opposition and persecution, write that he was unashamed of the gospel, so much so that he wanted to take the gospel to Rome and then from Rome to Spain, where it had never gone before? Friends, how can you, how can you grow in boldness and commitment to preach the gospel in the midst of a world hostile to Jesus and his people? Well, friends, I I trust our text today will provide the answers to these questions. Let's read together Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. We'll read down to verse 17. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Friend, here's the main idea of Romans 1, 8 to 17 that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon today, if I'm doing this work of expositional preaching right. Here's the main idea of the text. The desires and commitments of your Christian life ought to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The desires and commitments. What makes you tick, right? What animates you? Those desires and commitments ought to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 8 to 12, we'll see, friends, Paul's gospel eagerness, a gospel eagerness that we should share. Number two, gospel obligation in verses 13 to 15. And then finally, gospel confidence in verses 16 to 17. Gospel eagerness, gospel obligation, gospel confidence. And beloved, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit uh, might cause us to remember that above all, we are a gospel people and that we would so live with the eagerness and the obligation and the confidence that the gospel gives us. Number one, gospel eagerness. 
Uh, in verses 8 to 15, Paul's just brimming with zeal, isn't he? Zeal in the gospel that he has just proclaimed in the, in the preceding verses. I mean, his cup is filled up and it is overflowing from celebrating God's work in the Romans in verse 8 to telling them he's constantly praying for them in verses 9 and 10 to his commitment in verses 11 and following to travel to Rome and preach the gospel. Friends, Paul is a man who is eager and zealous in gospel ministry. And I think it's clear from these verses that Paul wants the Roman believers to share his gospel zeal. I think that's why he's doing this. He wants them to be just as eager as he is about the work of the gospel. We get a hint of that in verse 12, right? Where Paul writes that it's not only that he wants to encourage and strengthen them, he wants them both to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Here's an official apostle of King Jesus, one to whom God communicates his word directly, stating openly his desire to to be strengthened uh, by the faith of churches that he has never met. And that is astounding to me. Paul wants the Romans to share his gospel eagerness. Paul's not content for the Romans merely to kind of understand theoretically the truths of verses 1 to 7 about the exalted Jesus. No, he wants the gospel eagerness of verses 8 to 15 to course through their spiritual veins. Friends, I think this is what the Holy Spirit wants for us too. Like, it's not enough, is it, to confess right doctrine? It's not enough to merely assent to the true gospel. And we we must let it permeate every pore of our lives so that our, our perspective and our desires, our commitments, our activities are increasingly being shaped by the gospel. Look again at verse 8. Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So here, here's Paul rejoicing in the fact that God had done something unique for the sake of his name and the very seat of imperial power in the ancient world, the Roman, in the Roman Empire, Rome itself. Paul did not plant the, the church in Rome. He didn't plant those churches. His, his expression of gratitude wasn't some, you know, passive aggressive self-congratulation. No, he didn't plant them. These churches in Rome were likely planted by Jewish Christians who had dispersed from Jerusalem after Pentecost and they and began to evangelize the Gentiles in the city. Totally apart from the Apostle Paul, the gospel had been proclaimed in Rome, churches had been planted, and now the faith of these believers was being broadcast throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul was bursting at the seams to talk about it. God was fulfilling his promises, and these Roman believers were exhibit A of God's faithfulness. By the way, uh, brief aside from the main point of these verses, okay? Notice Paul explicitly states that he thanks his God through Jesus Christ. He goes out of his way, doesn't he, to make sure that the Romans remember that Christ Jesus is the one who mediates their access to God. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus has paved our entrance into the very throne room of God. We can go there with boldness, friends, because Jesus is already there representing us, even this morning. I think we just almost take it for granted, right, when we end every prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you do that? Take it for granted? It's old hat. But friends, don't let it be. It's not just a a customary way to kind of land your prayer plane, right? Uh, In Jesus' name expresses the rich gospel theology, and and then really the only reason our thanks and prayers have a shot to make it to God's ears in the first place and be answered 
The only reason is through Christ Jesus. And so I would just, I would just encourage us as a church, please keep praying verbally, out loud, in Jesus' name. I, I want to encourage you in, in, in our corporate prayers on Sunday morning, our corporate prayers on Sunday night, even in your prayers in your house-to-house group, smaller settings. Don't just say, Amen, and that's it. Don't just let your prayer kind of fade off like the mist into oblivion. No, don't just be done with it. Let your prayer be concluded with a strong, confident, in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, it's not sin if you don't, but it's very good if you do, okay? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a side over. Notice from verse 9, verse 9, Paul didn't just celebrate God's work in Rome. He prayed for more of it. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least at last succeed in coming to you. It's almost like Paul knows that the Roman believers might be skeptical that he whom they had never met would pray regularly for them. And so he leads off with, and God is my witness, right? God is, God is my witness here. He knows the truthfulness of what I'm saying since he's the one that I'm praying to regularly about you. Notice also in verse 9, Paul invokes his service in the gospel of God's son. Do you see that? He serves in the gospel. The arena or the sphere in which Paul ministered was the gospel. And Paul was not out to craft some kind of apostolic platform for himself. He wasn't committed to his own good or kind of his own mini kingdom, but to the good of God's gospel and the advance of Christ's kingdom, no matter how the work got done. And so, friends, when, when he heard of this good gospel work going on in such a critical, strategic place as Rome, he could not help but thank God for it and to pray for more of it. Friends, gospel-eager Christians, if you're going to be a gospel-eager Christians, you will be thankful and prayerful for gospel work in other places and through other Christians. Okay, let me just say that again. If you're going to be a gospel-eager Christian, you will be thankful and prayerful for God's work in the gospel in other places and through other Christians. You know, it is so easy to be myopic, isn't it? To be tunnel visioned, where all you can think about is your family's problems, your personal problems, your needs, our church. I get it. If you're like me, you, you have plenty of problems to go around, don't you? Right? And there is a lot of work to be done here in this place, within this body at RGC. And friends, certainly we should be thanking God and praying for the opportunities and need that we, that we see right in front of us here at RGC. I don't want to draw some sort of false dichotomy that it's more spiritual to pray for gospel work elsewhere and less spiritual than here. No. But that being said, Paul's example should encourage us. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to rejoice in the and rejoice in and pray for gospel work outside your life and outside our church. Why? Well, for one, the gospel of God isn't bound. It's not limited by your specific field of vision, by what you can see. God is advancing his gospel throughout the world. Worshipers of Jesus Christ are being gathered from among the nations for the sake of his name. Surely if we're a gospel people, we ought to care deeply about the success of God's gospel and the good of God's people wherever it goes, wherever they are. You said, John, I hear you. I hear you. That's okay. But the known world now is a whole lot bigger than it was then, right? And, and the Christian world now or is a ton bigger than it 
was then. Surely it was a lot easier back then for believers to hear about each other and pray for one another. Maybe. In those early days of the church, I'm sure the word got out pretty well whenever an embassy of King Jesus was established. Maybe those early Christians had a bit of an advantage that way. But friends, surely, surely we today in 2023 have so many more advantages toward this type of perspective than Paul did with all the advances of of communications and travel technology that we enjoy, right? I take it for granted. I'm sure you do too. Whereas 120 years ago, a trip across the valley would have taken a full day or more. I just hop in my car. And I go to visit and encourage other pastors in the Grove Church Planning Network and in the Gospel Coalition Arizona. Today, you can send an email from, from Goodyear, and within seconds, it can be opened in the United Arab Emirates. We can FaceTime and Zoom and Skype and all the rest, and it actually in real time see the, the smiling faces of missionaries and believers across the world. A trip to see missionaries and and believers in the remote places of the world was practically impossible in, in centuries gone by. Now we simply hop on a plane and we can reach them within a day. Our friends, surely one godly way we can utilize technology is an eagerness and an intentionality to rejoice in and pray for and support good gospel work among other churches and other locations. Perhaps you've wondered why here at RGC we regularly pray for God's work in other local churches here in Arizona and around the world. We did this morning. Well, friends, in part because of Paul's example. When a church prays for other churches, it draws attention to our common bond in Christ, our common mission in the gospel. It's fodder for corporate praise when God answers our prayers and spreads his gospel through, through those for whom we pray. That's why we try to give you regular updates in our Sunday evening prayer meetings about what God is doing in the development of the Grove Church Planning Network. That's why we try to give you frequent updates about our supported worker, Douglas Reed, and the church that he serves there in the UAE. At our last members meeting, we watched a a short video from Doug that, that praised God in which Doug was just rejoicing for some who had recently come to faith there for the, from, in the church in, in Ras al Khaimah, a Christmas service in which 15 Muslims had been in uh, in attendance because they wanted to hear more about Jesus. Oh, friends, we ought to rejoice in these types of reports and pray for more of the same. You know what this type of gospel eagerness does when it relating to other churches and other places? Here's what it does. It keeps us from thinking that we've cornered the market when it comes to good gospel work, right? It guards us against an effort to build a kind of a mini gospel kingdom in, in which only what we're doing is celebrated and prayed for. Friend, I believe that type of mindset will deaden a church over time. And we, we pray frequently here for the fruit of conversions and the, the work of the Spirit in our city here in the Southwest Valley. Let me ask you a question. What if God answered our prayers for the conversions of many in our city, but through the church down the road? Would you still be excited? Would we still thank God? Or are we so tribal and competitive about the harvest that we only rejoice when we're the ones doing the harvesting? I think this gospel eagerness should just permeate our life together as a church. 
In verse 11, Paul writes that he longs to see the Romans in order to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Uh, Paul here is not talking about the gifts from the Spirit that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, since those are the Spirit's gifts to give, not Paul's. No, rather he clarifies what he's talking about in verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I think the spiritual gift that Paul has in mind here is nothing less than the ministry of gospel teaching and strengthening that fills the letter to the Romans. He wants to encourage the Romans' faith to unify them in the gospel, and he expects them to do the same for him. Friends, so much more could be said in application here, but I just wanted to note that Paul's gospel gaze is always directed upward to God and outward to others. That's just how the man was. May the Lord grant us this type of generosity and eagerness in God's gospel. Number two, not only do we see gospel eagerness, but gospel obligation. Gospel obligation. In verses 13 to 15, Paul stresses to the Romans that they ought not to interpret his distance from them as a lack of desire, right? He he says in verse 13, "I, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So so clearly, friends, Paul didn't merely want to be mobilized by the Romans to go to Spain. He wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. He wanted to see the Lord bring a harvest of mature fruit among the Roman Christians as well as the other Gentiles. And Paul, uh, excuse me, God had called Paul to be an apostle to the non-Jewish world in particular. And so it's, it's no surprise that, that, that Paul wanted to go to Rome. I mean, no city in the ancient world was more diverse or more cosmopolitan or, or more ethnic, you know, more of an ethnic and cultural melting pot than Rome. Notice, though, Paul's longing to go there wasn't merely for evangelism. Did you notice that? Although evangelism, obviously evangelism is a huge part of it. He writes in verse 13 that he wanted to reap a harvest of spiritual fruit among you. In verse 15, he writes that he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Friends, I don't know how to take that except for the fact that Paul intended to minister the gospel in Rome not only to non-Christians, but to the Christians too, to the churches there in Rome. See, friends, the gospel of God is not only good news to the lost, it's wonderfully good news to the saved. The gospel isn't merely God's rescuing message, the gospel is God's sanctifying message. It not only fuels our evangelism, it also fuels our discipleship. Think about it. What what assures us of God's love? What strengthens us with God's grace? What grounds our hope in trials? What motivates our holiness in times of temptation? What invigorates our worship? Oh, friends, it's the message of our crucified, risen, and coming King. It's the gospel. Friends, if you're interested in learning more and even in a devotional way, trying making connections from the gospel to your to your daily lives, let me let me recommend a resource to you. It's called the Gospel Primer for Christians. The Gospel Primer for Christians. It's spelled like primer, but it's not primer. That's what you put on a wall before you paint it. Okay, this is the Gospel Primer for Christians. It's just a wonderful devotional aid making connections from the gospel to daily life. 
However, I, you know, as much as Paul is, is uh, dead set on preaching the gospel to believers there, I don't, I don't think there's any question that he aimed to evangelize in Rome. Look at verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The words translated under obligation there in verse 14 is actually one Greek word, the word for debtor. Paul says, I, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, friends, how in the world could Paul be a debtor to the Greeks and barbarians in Rome and beyond? He had never met them before. What obligation did he have toward them? What did he owe them? Well, think about it. There are, there are two different ways to become someone's debtor, right? The first is to borrow money from someone. Okay, the second way to become someone's debtor. It's not just to borrow money from someone, but to be given money from someone that you need to then give to someone else, right? So Hondo gives me 500 bucks to give to Nate, right? I'm like the kind of the go-between between Hondo and Nate. Well, until I give that 500 bucks to Nate that Hondo has entrusted to me, whose debtor am I? I'm Nate's debtor. It's my obligation to give Nate the 500 bucks that Hondo gave to me. Now, Surely it's obvious now what kind of Paul means by this. On the road to Damascus, King Jesus had, had granted Paul spiritual life and he commissioned Paul to take the gospel to all peoples. Acts 9.15 there in that passage says that Paul was to take it to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. Paul was obligated to preach to all because Jesus had entrusted him with the gospel. In particular, Paul was a debtor to the Gentile world. He was indebted to preach the gospel to all. You see the, the contrasting couplets there in verse 14? Look at the text. Paul's a debtor to Greek and barbarian, wise and fools. He's basically saying, I'm a debtor to those whom the world considers the educated and the cultured and in the mainstream of society, as well as those whom the elites in the world the wise in the world consider to be fools. Friends, the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus, whose message must be received by faith, that gospel is the, the great leveler of humanity. All must come empty-handed to Jesus or they don't come at all. There is level ground at the foot of the cross. And friends, there ought to be level ground in our evangelism. To be a gospel Christian, friend, you cannot be a respecter of persons. It's just antithetical. Friends, both the rich and the poor, the white collar and the blue collar, the, the multi-generation American citizen and the illegal immigrant, the, the English speaker and the Spanish, the college professor and the high school dropout, all need the gospel and we ought to be eager to share it with all. <laughs> Beloved, I know we're not apostles. We didn't meet King Jesus on the road to Damascus, but, but if you're a Christian this morning, I think I'm on, I'm on safe biblical ground to say that you too are a debtor to the lost world. The gospel has come to us and we do not have the liberty or the right to simply hoard it for ourselves and monopolize it for ourselves. We are downstream inheritors of Christ's commission to go into all the world and make disciples. We too have an obligation to share the gospel with others. 
Friends, if you, if you believe, if you've been entrusted with this good news of the king's victory and the offer of his pardon in the gospel, and now you're obligated a debtor to the world to make his good news known, oh, friends, we must do it with urgency before it's too late. I wonder if you've conceived of your personal relationship with the gospel with that type of urgency. The victory has been won. <laughs> pardon has been secured. Now that message of victory and pardon has been entrusted to us. We are debtors to the lost. Friends, I wonder if you feel in your spiritual bones the ache of obligation to get the gospel out wherever you are. Do you feel that? The elders have set aside times once or twice a month in which our church gathers to pray together. And you know what these prayer times are designed for? They're specifically geared toward praying for our evangelism and our discipleship efforts and kind of mobilizing our church toward those efforts. And right now, about a quarter of our church attends those services. I'm so thankful for the sweet prayer times that the Lord gives us together. But friends, I got to admit, I often think to myself, what might God do through Redeeming Grace Church if there were a burning energy in all of us to pray together and work together and give together, motivated, motivated by the obligation, the debt to the lost. Friends, I pray that the Lord uses his word by his spirit, even this morning, to deepen in each of us an eager gospel obligation to proclaim the good news. So we not only see gospel eagerness, gospel obligation, but finally, and very importantly, Paul's gospel confidence, verses 16 to 17. Really, it's another reason that Paul is so eager to preach the gospel in Rome. You see that? It's not only because of his gospel obligation, but also because of his gospel confidence. Paul writes in verse 16, for, okay, there's the word that shows us that he's giving us a reason for his eagerness in verse 15, right? His reason for his, his desire to preach the gospel in Rome, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything in these verses is tightly related theological logic, isn't it? Paul gives us three fours, right? That really mean because, three becauses. Paul writes in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And why is the gospel God's saving power? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. And all of this is supported by the Old Testament, namely Habakkuk 2.4 that we read earlier, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. The fountainhead, though, of this whole theological stream is Paul's massive confidence in the gospel so much that he is not ashamed to proclaim it in Rome. Friends, I appreciate so much all of you who replied to my email on Friday uh, asking for reasons why you're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel or embarrassed uh, to share the gospel of Jesus. It's a temptation for me. It's a temptation for every one of us. Uh, one sister said that she's sometimes embarrassed that her unbelieving friends will see the gospel as a ridiculous fantasy. And several said that they fear what others will think of them when they share the good news. Some talked about dreading the conflict that such a gospel conversation might involve or the separating of relationships between those whom they love. Others 
said they feel inadequate to deal with the questions that might arise from their unbelieving friends and family. Friends, surely Paul had similar temptations. Rome was the seat of imperial power in Paul's world. In Rome, it was all about your place in the social strata. The higher up the social or political or economic ladder you went, the more power you had. So surely, surely the message of a crucified Jewish carpenter slash rabbi whom Christians proclaimed God had raised from the dead and crowned Lord of all would have sounded batty in Rome. After all, Paul wrote elsewhere that the gospel was scandalous to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We read it as our call to worship this morning. It was no different then than now. The context has changed to the modern world, but the mechanics of how this, how this works have not changed. And yet, Paul wrote that he was not ashamed of the gospel, this message of God's salvation. Friends, Paul was not blustering with false confidence. By this time in his career, Paul had suffered intensely for preaching the gospel message, calling people to repentance and faith. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned multiple times. He'd been mistreated time and time again. And by the way, let's pause to remember how it was that Paul eventually made his way to Rome. It wasn't voluntarily on his way to Spain, as Paul expressed his hope for in the letter. Paul came to Rome in chains. He did preach to the Gentiles and even to kings, but as a prisoner of Rome for the Lord Jesus' sake. The trip to Spain never came to fruition. According to tradition, Paul was beheaded several miles outside the city walls of Rome. But nevertheless, to the end, he was not ashamed of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, on the last day, this brother will be vindicated along with all of us who boldly proclaim the message of our king. Why? Why could Paul have such massive confidence in the gospel? We asked this question at the beginning. How did he overcome the shame of opposition and ridicule and the cultural awkwardness of preaching this message? He tells us in verse 16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul states it clearly, right? The reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is that this gospel is God's rescuing power. Notice Paul didn't say the gospel brings the power of God or the gospel shows the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, which certainly not only means current forgiveness of sins, but future rescue from God's day of judgment. That in time salvation is through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let these words sink in this morning. Every time you open your mouth and you speak the good news to someone who needs it, you are setting loose the explosive, electrifying power of God to save sinners. Some will reject it, of course. But for others whom God chooses and calls this gospel will become the very power of God to break through the concrete of their pride and to save them. Think of how God's word works. Let's just meditate on that for a second. Think of how God's word works. God commanded, let there be light. And it was so. God spoke and whole worlds came into existence. Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man hopped out of the tomb wrapped in his burial cloths, 
right? Beloved, the reason Paul has such confidence in the gospel is because God has packed his world-creating, death-overturning power in the, and behind this message, this gospel. People hear the good news that Jesus died for sinners, and God and his power makes them a new creation. Rebels against God hear the message that Jesus is the risen and reigning king, and the spirit and his power resurrects their dead hearts to life. Where does such explosive power exist? It's not in your words. It's not in your eloquence. It's not in your apologetics. Although the Lord can use all those things, the power exists in the message. The power exists in the gospel itself. Friends, if you're a member of our church family here at RGC, guess what? I know you know the gospel. You know why? You know how I know? Because in your conversation with one of our elders before you became part of the church, we asked you to tell us the gospel. You could not have become part of our church if you don't know the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you don't have to have a seminary degree to open your mouth and share the good news. You don't have to have gone through a certain training course or our pastoral internship. You simply have to have confidence that the gospel is the very power of God to rescue the lost, and then you open your mouth and you speak it. Spurgeon called the act of preaching the gospel uncaging the lion. The power is not in the one who unlatches the cage, but in the one let loose. Beloved, I know it's scary, it's intimidating to engage the lost with the gospel, but how else will they be saved? If you keep the lion caged, if you keep the explosive power in its case, it cannot do its work. Don't let fear of shame keep your mouth shut. Friends, the gospel is true. The resurrection of Jesus proves it. This gospel might appear weak and pathetic in the, in the eyes of the world. It may seem silly. And yet it is in this apparently weak message that God uses to powerfully save the lost. My goodness, if you feel underprepared to share, which I'm sure that is the case for some of you, don't be content to stay there. Shore up your knowledge of the gospel. Make sure you know the gospel well. We literally have hundreds of copies of this book. What is the gospel? Okay, we give it out to all of our guests. Friends, this, this book is for actually primarily for Christians. It was written for those in the pew, so to speak. It's a wonderful evangelistic tool, but it is written for Christians to know and be able to proclaim the gospel well. Get this book. If you don't have it, we'd be glad to give it to you. Every believer must know and proclaim the gospel. Where was I? Power. Okay. All right. Notice, Paul writes that this gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, which is a statement about order and redemptive history, and also to the Greek. And this powerful gospel is not reserved, again, for a special class of people. All who trust on it, in it and rely on it will be saved. In verse 17, Paul tells us why the gospel is God's saving power. To summarize, he says the gospel is God's saving power because it reveals God's righteousness. You see that? Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, now what does this phrase mean? The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Some have said that this righteousness that Paul refers to is what God is. 
as in God's character, right? He's impeccably righteous and just. God is the judge of the earth who can only do what is right. There's no hint of wrong in him. He's, he's righteous. Others have said, no, this righteousness revealed in the gospel isn't so much what God is, but what God does. It's his activity of saving sinful people. After all, verse 18, which we'll come to next week, says that God's wrath is likewise revealed against unrighteousness. It's obviously God's judging activity. So this righteousness that Paul's talking about must be his saving activity. Still others have said, no, this righteousness revealed in the gospel isn't so much what God is or what God does, but what God gives. It's a righteous status that he gifts to unrighteous people. God declares people who have been who have this kind of guilty verdict hanging over their lives in relationship to him to be entirely innocent they receive god's righteousness after all paul says here that this righteousness revealed in the gospel is revealed in a certain way see that it's revealed how it's revealed from faith for faith which is just paul's rhetorical way of saying faith from first to last right faith from beginning to end This righteousness of God starts and ends with faith in Jesus. So who's right? Which one of those perspectives? Is this righteousness revealed in the gospel what God is, what God does, or what God gives? Well, I actually think we're going to see Paul use righteousness, this phrase, the righteousness of God, in all three ways in Romans. Uh, There's no question that the gospel reveals God to be righteous. There's no question that God righteously saves sinners and that in saving, he gives them the gift of his righteousness. But, but most of the time when Paul in Romans talks about the righteousness of God in the gospel, he means the righteousness that God gives by his grace through faith. Sinful human beings will either experience this righteousness in judgment on the last day Or they will experience God's righteousness because God mercifully gives them a righteous status before him. And Paul says, whether or not you experience God's righteousness as justice or as mercy hinges on whether you have faith in Jesus to rescue you from God's righteous wrath. It's from faith for faith. You say, John, how can God still be righteous when he shows sinners mercy? How can he let guilty sinners off the hook and still be just? Well, glad you asked. Paul is going to spend the rest of this first section of Romans explaining the mechanics of that. It's going to culminate in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Spoiler alert, okay? Spoiler alert, the way it happens is through Christ Jesus, God's righteous son who died on the cross for the unrighteous. He satisfied God's righteous wrath for all who believe in him so that God might be both just in judging sin as well as the merciful justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, God did not just sweep your sin under the rug of eternity. He didn't shove it in the closet and hope no one would remember. No, God's righteousness means that he must judge sin. He must And thanks be to God, in staggering mercy, he judged Jesus, the sinless one, as if he were the sinner, so that we, the hopeless sinners, might be declared righteous. I don't care how shameful the stuff you've done is. 
I don't care how wicked you are, friend. It doesn't matter how long in your life you've spent running from the Lord. If you trust in Christ to save you, Christ's righteousness will be credited to your account as if you were the completely righteous one. God declares you righteous through Christ. While at the same time, your sin, your rebellion against God is credited to Jesus' account as if Jesus on the cross were the sinner, not you. He became sin for us, Paul wrote elsewhere, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. So friend, if you'll turn your life over to Jesus this morning, if you'll turn from your sin and trust in Christ, he will actually save you and forgive you and give you a righteous standing before God. That's why Paul reiterates, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. From faith for faith. Even as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we're almost done, and I, you know, I hate to have the kind of the theologically dense part at the end of a sermon, because you guys are tired and hungry and ready to go, but stay with me here, okay? Paul here quotes Habakkuk 2.4 to prove his point. He's saying this is the way that from the beginning to the end, right? From, from the Old Testament on, this is the way people have had a right standing with God and receive eternal life. It's through faith in God's promise. Think about the context that we read in Habakkuk. Habakkuk complained to God about the unrighteousness that, that existed, the injustice in the land of Judah, what he perceived to be God's inaction in dealing with it. And so what did God promise? What did he tell Habakkuk? Don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Babylonian army to judge Israel, to judge Judah. I'm going to, I'm going to judge my people through an enemy nation. And of course, that confused Habakkuk even more since the Babylonians were like way worse than the people of Judah. Why would God judge this way? That also seems very unjust to Habakkuk. And God essentially tells Habakkuk, I'll deal with Babylon at the right time. Even when judgment seems slow, wait for it in faith. Indeed, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, friends, the righteous trust the Lord for his provision of justice, even when that justice seems slow. And it's through this reliance on God, not themselves, that, that, that reliance on God guarantees that they will live through God's wrath. The, the righteous shall live by his faith. Friends, this is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus. It's at the very heart. This is why it's the power of God for salvation for all who believes. This is why you can be so confident in the gospel. Because in the gospel, God shows himself to be both righteous and the righteouser. <laughs> the justifier of the one who relies on and trusts in Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and God's judgment of it. God's righteousness that saves is for those who come to him empty-handed. So I've got nothing to offer you, Lord. I'm relying entirely on your grace to forgive and to save me. In June of 1859, June 30th, 1859, a French tightrope walker named Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as the Great Blondine, tightroped across Niagara Falls. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know how amazing and crazy that is, right? And then, less than three months later, on September 15th, 1859, the Great Blondine made the feat again, this time carrying a man on his back. You can imagine, this I don't think happened, but you can imagine 
the great blondine, asking the watching crowd, who believes that I can tightrope across the falls? Hands go up everywhere, right? Because they had seen him already do it. He did it once before. He can do it again. Yeah, I believe that. Okay, how many believe that I can walk across the falls with a man on my back? Oh, yeah, you're good. We believe that. You're like the old school evil Knievel. You can do it. Wonderful. Who would like to take the trip on my back across the falls? Uh. Right? Crickets. You see, friends, there's a major difference between the intellectual or theoretical belief in Jesus that he exists and true faith in Christ. Christian faith is faith that relies on Christ alone to save. It's faith that rests on Jesus to take us across the chasm that you could not cross on your own in a million years. We read this morning, God is so righteous that he cannot even look upon sin. And yet you and I are filled with it. And that is bad news. We need a righteous standing before God. And only one man has that. Only one man has that righteous standing. The God-man who lived and died and rose again in our place and then ascended on high to bring us into God's presence. Friends, you must rely fully on Jesus. God's righteousness for sinners is by faith for faith. It's from beginning to end faith. You see, it's not faith that saves. I'm going to say it again. It's not faith that saves. It's God that saves through faith. It wasn't the man's faith that brought him across Niagara. The great Blondine brought the man across Niagara. But the only reason he got across the chasm is that he trusted and relied on the great Blondine to carry him. The great Blondine got the glory. The man got the safety, right? Friends, in the gospel, Jesus gets the glory. We, by faith, get the salvation. May God strengthen us with gospel eagerness and gospel obligation. May we never be ashamed of the gospel, but have full confidence that it is the very power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, do this work in us and among us, we pray. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how you have used it powerfully to save and rescue and transform so many in this room. Oh, Lord, we ask that uh, you would cause the message today for those who don't know you to be like a little pebble in their shoe, uh, Father, that, that is just there bringing attention to the fact that they need to be reconciled to you by faith in Jesus. May you do that great work in many today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.